Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Vic Aladef. Vic is the CEO of the New South Wales Jewish Board of Deputies. He is the spokesperson of the Keep New South Wales Safe campaign and a former editor of the Australian Jewish News. Vic, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here, you too. Thank you. Before we jump right in with uh, the, the latest round of craziness in the news, I wanted to um, cover a bit of your background. You were originally um, born on the Greek islands. I, I was actually born on, in Zimbabwe, but my parents were born on the Greek island of Rhodes. And uh, my family were on Rhodes for 500 years, having been expelled from Spain under Inquisition, Ferdinand and Isabella way back in 1492. So for 500 years, there was a growing and thriving Jewish community on Rhodes, culminated, culminating in a community of 5,000 people. Excuse me, it was so rich in tradition, it was called Little Jerusalem. That community... Um, imploded and, and eventually was destroyed in the lead up to World War II when, when laws, the Nuremberg laws uh, became, became law in, in Europe, essentially isolating Jews out of civil society. So when that happened, 3,000 of the 5,000 Jews on roads left roads, <coughs> excuse me, for United States, South America, and in my family's case, Zimbabwe or Rhodesia as it was called, and I was born in Rhodesia. Just putting that to one side, 2,000 Jews remained on roads. Um, Italian forces arrived and it was a benign occupation, left the Jews in peace, essentially. 1944, one year before the end of the war, German forces arrived on Rhodes Island with orders to liquidate that, the remaining community. The 2,000 Jews still there were sent to Auschwitz where all but about 150 were massacred. That included 151 members of my family, the Aladefs, including my grandparents, my father's parents. So destroyed that community. Today there are five Jewish families left on roads. And uh, it's a a very sad remains of of a once thriving Jewish community. Was Was that part of what drew you to journalism in the first place? It's, no, it wasn't. Um, what drew me to journalism was, was the fact that I, I had an interest in everything, literally. And, and, and what appealed to me about journalism was that no subject is irrelevant. Whether that be sport or politics or, or history, geography or, or the latest fashion, um, I have an interest in whatever is happening and journalism uh, opens doors to that, and and that was the main uh, that was the main attraction of journalism, the fact that everything was is relevant, and and that very much appealed to me. Plus the fact that I enjoy writing, I enjoyed writing as a as a as a student, and and I've you know done a lot of writing and continue to. So I guess both of those two streams came together. Journalism was a logical choice for me. So you were. Uh born in Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia, um, and you ended up spending some of your 
uh, early work life in South Africa where you worked in journalism. Exactly right. I went to university in South Africa, the University of Cape Town, and then Rhodes University for a postgraduate course, and went into journalism uh, and became chief sub-editor of the Cape Times, which was and is Cape Town's more, uh, daily newspaper. And that, interestingly, was a strongly anti-apartheid newspaper during the apartheid era. And the South African government, the apartheid government, didn't just um, imprison people like Mandela and other activists, they also banned people. And there was this morass of... of, of I'm sorry, banned people? Banned, as in B-A-N-N-E-D. From what? I'll explain what that means. And there was, there was a morass of legislation which governed what media could and could not do. And so if somebody was banned, like Mandela and other colleagues, or an organization like the African National Congress, it was against the law to publish the photograph of a banned person, to quote a banned person. And so if there was to be an anti-apartheid demonstration in Johannesburg next week, and we wrote about that, that could be interpreted as promoting the aims of a banned organization. And so it condemned those who are banned to twilight existence. It meant that it meant that the general South African population never heard from, saw photographs of, read the thoughts of people who are banned. So people like Mandela and others, I use his name obviously because the most high profile, became, while their names were known, because their names would be used in very pejorative sense by members of parliament, describing them as terrorists, communists, subversives, all of that. You never got to hear from them what their thoughts were, what their aims were, what their dreams were. And they, they became you know, uh, more than just persona non grata. They were outcasts out of society. Some people were banned, but not in prison. But again, they were condemned to this twilight, twilight existence. And as sub-editor and chief sub-editor of the Cape Times, on a very anti-apartheid paper, we had to, and we did, find creative ways of letting people know what was happening while uh, not breaking the law. And that was a, that was a challenge. That, that, was, uh, that was the game at the time, to try and maneuver around the legislation. Yeah, and more than a game, because like there was one case I remember publishing a story and one of our sister paper in Johannesburg published the same story. They were fined 50,000 rand at the time. We were not fined at all. And why? Because I put a question mark on the headline. So like, did so-and-so do this? They, they put it as fact, I put it as a question. And that little question mark um, avoided us getting a 50,000 rand fine. So it was, um, and then at the time- and So that's like a very valuable question mark. <laughs> And it, most English language papers were anti-apartheid. Yeah. And, and we all, most of us get, had police spies on the paper. We knew who our spy was, one of our senior journalists. And there were a number of times when I'd sent the paper to bed, typically around quarter to 12, midnight. And we'd get a phone call from the magistrate's office saying that we know you've got a story incriminating this government bureaucrat or minister be ordering an injunction, putting an injunction on that story, ordering it out of the paper. We have to pull back the trucks, dump the 100,000 copies, whatever it was in those days, and pull out the story and reprint the paper. Wow. So, so it was pretty uh, hairy times, I have to say. 
crazy. Well, you, you got out of that, um, you moved to Israel for a while, and then decided that uh, for the sake of your career, you had to move back to the English-speaking world. Exactly right. Um, and you came to uh, Australia, where you were at the Jewish News for 18 years, nine years of that as an editor. Exactly. Um, during that time, did you feel like what had become, what had started with, in South Africa, sort of playing on the defensive, uh, you now had more room to maneuver. Let's say, like you, you were more free in your in your ability to speak out about things that were important to you. So, no question. I mean, we left Israel because of the language. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, I could buy my groceries in Hebrew, but to be a journalist, yet yeah, we have you have to be competitive. You've got to be better than the rest. And and I found it was going to take me you know twenty years to get to that level, if ever. Uh, you know, we, obviously, it's journalism, the language is your tool of your trade. And so, so that was a problem for me. And so, as you said, I needed to get back to an English-speaking country. And in fact, I was offered four jobs on the second day I was here on the strength of having been chief sub-editor of a daily paper. And that was on the Daily Telegraph, the Herald, the Australian, and the Australian Jewish News. And I wanted to, journalism is what I wanted to do, but... I wanted to do it about issues of which I cared about, and that drove me to the Australian Jewish News. So it was, you know, um, not only exploring but but advocating on issues that that I cared about. During your time at the Australian Jewish News, one of the things you were known for was uh, when there was an issue of particular importance that you felt was historical that you felt was important to, to act on in some way, you would um, write full front-page editorials for the Jewish News. So uh, for when there was a walk for reconciliation across the Harbour Bridge, for exactly instance, right. yes. in other cases. If you had a, a platform like that today with, with what's been going on with Pittsburgh and with the National Party, what do you have an editorial that you're burning to write that you'd like everyone to hear? So I, I do feel I have... Not, obviously not an editor of a newspaper anymore. But that said, for the last few years, I've, I've had probably an average of half a dozen pieces published in the mainstream media every year for the last few years. Excuse me, in the Australian, the Weekend Australian, the Sydney Morning Herald, Daily Telegraph to some extent. And so, um, so I write pieces which, which I'm driven to write. Mm-hmm. No one's asking me to write these pieces. And they always on Jewish slash human rights issues. Um, and so, so I feel I do have a, no guarantee in this business, but I do have a vehicle um, to, to get opinion pieces out there when I'm so driven. And so, as I say, for the last few years, I've, I would say an average of half a dozen pieces, which is one every two months, which is a very satisfactory um, acceptance rate. Uh, in, in mainstream media, and as well as, as the Australian Jewish News. I just had a piece in the Jewish News last week on the journalist mission, uh, talking about the polar, two polar ends of the spectrum of the Israel-Palestinian divide. The two polar ends of the spectrum? Well, as we saw them on our visit, the one was w- uh, the glorification and veneration of suicide bombers, mm-hmm. which we saw on our visit. And at the other end of the spectrum, the... We had a meeting with the mayor of Efrat, uh, an inspirational man called Oded Revivi, who is a champion of Jewish Arab bridge building. Mm-hmm. So there you had that on the one end, you had the, this veneration of suicide bombers at the other, and just talking about 
But um, I mean, a recent piece I had in the Australian was it. Um, it's this year, 2018, would have been Mandela's. Sorry, was the hundredth anniversary of Mandela's birth, mm -hmm. and so I used that as a jumping-off point and and wrote about Mandela from the point of view of having been an editor on the paper while Mandela was in prison, and but then bringing in the human rights elements and issues, etc. So, and the. I think, I can't remember the Australian or the Herald ran that. I think it was the Australian. Mm -hmm. so, so I do have a platform which I can, uh, that I can speak to. You know, Get out the pieces that you, that you feel you need to give voice to. Yeah. So on, on, on the, so just moving things into like the, the present, this recent, the recent attack on Pittsburgh, the massacre, mm. that's been sending everyone into a spin. No one really knows how to take that. Yeah. You, you, been through a lot and you've watched a lot how, yeah. how are you how are you understanding this <laughs> to me two things uh, which emerge from that one is um, the absolute toxic presence which social media has become and and we see that um, and obviously of course there are positives and you can, you can google everything to your heart's content but it's become such a vehicle of choice for those who want to and be motivated by um, bigotry and racism and incitement to violence. And we saw this um, with the gunman in, in Pittsburgh. <clears throat> and, and the particular social media platform of choice is this one I hadn't heard of before called Gab. And the reason that it's popular is that unlike Facebook and Twitter, it doesn't censor or filter. And so, and, and if you look it up, if you read about it, it says it's actually... It says quite openly, it's a vehicle of choice for right-wing extremists. So, so you can put all sorts of toxic stuff there, and and it's there. And then you know you put that out enough, somebody's going to act on it eventually, as tragically we saw in Pittsburgh. The other element is is just increasing polarization in society. Just last week there was an election, a state election in Germany, mm -hmm. and and the results are very concerning. What are the results? The mainstream parties um, were decimated in this result, and the voters went in two directions, to the Greens on the left and to AFD, the alternative for Deutschland, which is in many respects a neo-Nazi party on the other. So that's where the voters went. And absolutely enca um, encapsulating this polarization which we see everywhere. Yeah. So to me, those two elements came together horrendously at Pittsburgh. In, in light of uh, responding to that, do you feel do you feel like it's a it's an isolated uh, madman incident, or do you feel like it's part of the general milieu of, of anti-Semitism on the rise? I think very much the second one, and and not only of anti-Semitism on the rise, but on racism and bigotry, on 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 um, intolerance of difference on the rise. And I was interviewed on Sky the other night, and the interviewer said, um, it seems that this gunman, uh, Robert Bowers, was not part of any group, but a lone wolf, does that give you comfort? I said, it gives no comfort. Because, you know, those people were brutally murdered for one reason only, and that's because they were Jews. And whether that was done by, you know, mass organization or one individual, the end result is the same. So, 
in in the light of this, this uh, this stuff that's obviously happening, social media as a as a platform for toxicity, uh, polarization in politics. What what can actually be done about it, if anything? I guess two things come to mind. One is is leadership is always important, and people who engage in this sort of behavior tend to, it's a generalization, but tend to be cowards, and tend to cower away when leaders. Political leaders, obviously, who have microphones, but not only political leaders, faith leaders, church leaders, whatever groups they belong to, make a statement that that sort of behavior is not acceptable. We condemn it. We, it it's outlawed. It's out, it's, we absolutely condemn it. So, so the latest incident that's happening with the National Party here in, in, in Australia, where there's been allegations as yet unproven, but allegations that 20 to 35 young members have infiltrated the National Party with allegiances to neo-Nazi groups, to white supremacist groups, alt-right groups. The, the good news is that the leadership of the party is, is conducting an investigation and say, if we find that this is proven, then you are out of the party. Now, that is tremendous leadership and is important leadership. So that's the one thing. The second thing is... As I mentioned a moment ago, social media. Providers have a have a case to answer. If providers are letting you put up there any toxic hate and violence that you want, um, that needs to be held accountable as well. So this this seems to have been a theme for the for a while recently, like people have been discussing how uh, how much responsibility do people do corporations like Facebook and Twitter have uh, to people? Are they are they just um, uh, platforms at this point, or do they have more of the status of utilities, and should they be subject to greater regulation, and so on? And and you know, there's a lot to say about that. But just here, from what you're um, telling me about Gab, it seems like as as the big companies have have started cracking down on stuff like this, that little smaller platforms have just sprung up to deal with that. Is there a way to is there a way to uh, manage the fact that like that seems to be an ongoing phenomenon like how do you stop every small instance and and that right there that right there is the problem and and what makes social media such a such a toxic wasteland mm-hmm. not not wasteland such a toxic fertile the opposite of wasteland such a fertile toxic uh, vehicle um, I, to me it, they cannot be just utilitarian because that's you know, we live in the real world and it's and, and you can't just say, well, here's a vehicle and whatever you do with it, you know, go for your life. That's to me that's a cop out and 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 you have a everyone is an agent in how the discourse plays out. Mm-hmm. And and social media more than ever is a massive agent in, in, in what the public discourse is saying and hearing and listening to. Um, to your other question, how do you control that? The short answer is, I don't know. Um, other than, I guess, through public pressure, I mean, we live in, fortunately, we live in free societies, and well, I mean, free societies, but with responsibilities. <clears throat> and democracies come with responsibilities, and so they should. And to me, um, platforms like Gab need to be accountable and need to be subject to, to, to civil discourse constraints. But, you know, as we know, in the United States in particular, um, freedom of speech is sacrosanct, mm-hmm. and uh, more so than in, you know, 
so many other countries. Even even the rest of uh, the English speaking world all seem to have some restraints here and there. But yeah. For America, it's, it's a in, in America, it's 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 sacrosanct, and, and yeah, so which makes it very difficult um, to control to, to control the sort of poison which which is getting peddled. And again, too, when you see this Bowers, this gunman from Pittsburgh, um, you know. One will never know the extent to which he was motivated by um, what what he's been absorbing you know, from from Gab and other platforms. Yeah, looking one step further, I mean, beyond the the restraints on on what can be said, where is this resurgence coming from? Like, the, obviously, the the expression of it through through social is happening through social media platform, but where's the energy for it coming from? It's a good you know, it's a good question. I mean, you see so much changing and changed uh, political discourse coming from different political leaders. And um, you know, just here in Sydney, uh, a week before last, and, and I, I, I was asked to comment on it, and one particular member of parliament, he posted a, a highly offensive tweet about Jews controlling Australia's foreign policy with a link to David Duke's website. David Duke being the former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. And obviously it was pointed out to him um, internally within his party, and then he took it down and said, oh, I didn't know, I didn't realize, etc." Et what position did he hold this man? He's, a, he's the Labour Member of Parliament. The same mem- Labour Member of Parliament who blocked me entering a multicultural event six weeks ago, whatever. So, um, you know, so there's somebody, a Member of Parliament, uh, he has a following, obviously, otherwise he wouldn't be sitting there, promoting a David Duke website. David Duke who talks about the evil of the Jews and white supremacists and all these toxic views and, and positions being promoted by an Australian member of parliament. So, yeah, that's... that's so, to go back to the question, so there's more and more of that from different politicians in different countries and just more, in one word, polarization and and you sort of see it manifesting in the real world like in Pittsburgh and like here when this alleged infiltration of the nationals by people with neo-nazi leanings do you see do you see a, a, a pathway through this this forest do you see a light here it, it's in the short answer the short answer is the positive is is that in the wake of, of, of um, Pittsburgh right now, the Jewish Board of Deputies, the Jewish community has been inundated with messages of support. Just two days ago, I got a call from the president of the New South Wales Islamic Council, and I know the gentleman well. And, and it was an eight, ten-minute conversation. And he said, I cannot condemn this strongly enough. I hate bigotry. I hate all the... I mean, you know, you felt the guy's passion on that, on that phone call, you know, which is, you know, hugely appreciative. Um, and so from archbishops and from different faith groups and different communities, from the Armenian to Hindu and Sikh and, and, the, and, and, the, and different Christian groups. So there's been overwhelming response and support saying, you know, we feel your pain. And that's, that's the good news um, when the horrific tragedy like Pittsburgh happens. Um, it's 
but then there's, I was going to say, then there's the broader picture. Maybe this positive is the broader picture, and and the bad stuff is is the negative. Um, it, it's it's going back to that mayor of Efrat. Um, he said when we met him two weeks ago, he said media understandably will report the one percent of bad days, and the ninety. Nine, the 99 percent of positive days when we get on with each other doesn't make news. Um, perhaps he's right. And may we may we come on to many more good days. <laughs> yeah. You have for the for people who are uh, right, just trying to cope with this and trying to figure out the next step forward. Do you have a, a message for people? Something that you feel that people can do on the ground to make things better? Two things. Maybe three. One is, is, is respect difference. There's a great line, which I read a hundred years ago from a book called The Fixer by Bernard Malamud. And he was writing about the dark days of the Soviet empire when Jews were you know, thrown into prison for the crime of being Jewish. And there was one anecdote when, when his jailer, this is in the Soviet Gulag, says to him, have respect. And his answer is, respect is something you must have in order to get. And I thought it was a, it's a brilliant use of English. And, it's, and I think it's so important that we want, and, and, and not only want, we, we want respect for ourselves as Jews. And so we should. Equally, we, we have an obligation to respect others for who they are. You know, with a basic premise, as long as they respect the rule of law, then, you know, whether they're Catholics, Greeks, Muslims, or Filipinos, that's absolutely their right, and they should embrace that as long as there's a, it's predicated on the rule of law. So we, 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 are, we want respect, and so we should. Equally, we must re- respect the right of others to be who they are. And to me, that's important. And the second important thing is, is to speak out. When we see racism, anti-Semitism, bigotry, it's not enough to wring our hands and, and the front next Friday night Shabbat table and say, isn't that terrible, and do nothing about it. Do something about it. Contact the Board of Deputies. Write letters to the editor. Be involved in the debate and, and make a change. It's one of my favorite lines is from Woody Allen. They said, 80% of life is about showing up. You need to show up. Something happens, be there. Make a statement, get involved. And it's only by being involved that we can make a difference. Thank you so much for coming on today. Pleasure. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.